Welcome to the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Ben Rose, along with Gorilla Technology. Welcome to another episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. I'm your host, Ben Rose, and today we're speaking to Natasha Callister, Head of Automotive and Driven at New Zealand Media and Entertainment. Natasha's accountable for all nationwide automotive revenues across the NZME network, as well as being general manager to one of NZME's digital ventures, the automotive marketplace business, Driven.co.nz. She reports into NZME's Chief Digital Officer, Laura Maxwell, and sits on the senior leadership team. Natasha doesn't believe in boxes and is hard to put in one. Her career spanned many different industries which historically are best known for being dominated by blokes. Think cars, farming and beer. She started her current stint at NZME as Head of Revenue for Grab One and Driven and prior to that headed up Asahi Beverages on-premise business channel, a role in which her team serviced over 2,000 nationwide hospitality clients. She's also had sales and marketing roles all over the country at well-known organisations Pernod Ricard, British American Tobacco, and another previous stint at NZME. So let's hear all about what it takes to sell cigarettes, alcohol, media and cars on today's podcast. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you very much, Ben. It sounds bad when you put it that way, doesn't it? I've, I've always sort of said, oh, maybe I should go into pharmaceuticals next and just, <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, paint a really poor picture of myself. Not no. at all, yeah. not at all. So look, it, it's, really, it's a really interesting mix of, of products. So just talk me through, I suppose, how, how that ended up being your portfolio over the years. Yeah, it is, it is funny, isn't it? I don't think that there was ever a sort of set plan yeah. in terms of what you know what industries I sort of wanted to go in. Mm. Uh, I'm someone that definitely looks at what opportunities are around me, what opportunities are available and definitely quite keen to kind of throw myself into new situations and have, have in some ways deliberately approached my career of wanting to get breadth and scope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, liquor, that potentially is... is I started off in hospitality when I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper yeah. in, in hotels and bars and restaurants and cafes. Right. And so I guess moving into the corporate world, that was probably a natural progression mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I sort of knew the products yeah. and, and so forth. But then it's just sort of evolved from there. I mean, tobacco, I've never smoked. I couldn't be further away from it. But yeah, right. <laughs> but an interesting opportunity and one yeah, that taught me yeah. a lot. So, yeah. And, and all, all, all um, I suppose, products where... You know, you remove the brand and quite similar products underneath the hood. So brand seems to play quite a role in those those different categories. It's been it's very different depending on the industry you're mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So in liquor, when I was in, and probably in particular on the spirits portfolio, I dealt with things like Absolute Vodka, Jamison Whiskey, Havana Club, mm. and people have a real affinity for brand. Yes. So they. You know, and probably to this day, I still wouldn't drink one of my competitors' products. Yeah, yeah it's funny how that happens. <laughs> However many decades on. But then in tobacco, you're selling widgets. Mm-hmm. Brand mm-hmm. doesn't come into it. Product doesn't come into it. You're talking about uh, planogramming, rate of sale, uh, rebates and pricing. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you're not selling to an end consumer. You're selling to a... Um, dairy or a supermarket or so forth and so yeah very different conversations and again that's you know I've learned something different from each of those experiences probably. And do you do you think um so you know you you, because you've worked across different industries you 
I would suggest you're a you know you're a commercial expert, but probably not a you know a purely alcohol expert or purely cigarette. So is that something you've deliberately done over the years? Do you know what what are your thoughts on kind of broad expertise versus deep expertise? Yeah, very much so. And I think in New Zealand, and it depends what you want to do with your career, right? But in New Zealand, we very much are gifted in that we can be broad. So, whereas if you go to the States, I might not just be a marketer or a digital marketer, but I might be a, a you know, conversion rate optimization specialist, yep, and that's yep. the little niche that I'm in. Yeah. I've tended to find that what has served me really well is, is going broad-based, so mm. I have experience both in sales and marketing, and whether that is you know, in, in various different structures, FMCG or, or not, or, but what that has enabled me to do is to approach business problems with diversity of thought. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. all know that high-performance teams need diversity of thought, and that has been, yeah, that's something that's definitely served me really well. And I'll give you an interesting example of when I was heading up the on-premise business for Asahi Beverages. Yeah. And traditionally the way that the brewery industry works is all of the breweries basically in, in on-premises like your shop window, it's you less volume than in grocery and retail. So on-premises, bars, pubs? Anywhere where the, where the drink is consumed on the venue. Okay. Yeah, so bars, pubs, um, restaurants, that sort of thing. Okay. So all your volume will go through grocery and retail channels, but your high margin and uh, where you get brand equity mm. is having your products consumed in you know, fabulous establishments. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, right. if my beer is being poured in Soul Bar and the Viaduct, I'm trading off their brand equity. Mm. So all that sort of thing. And the way the industry works is typically you'll have a five-year pouring contract with one of those particular uh, venues. Some obviously are free houses and prefer not to do any sort of uh, investment with a brewery like that. But in those that do, it's typically a five-year contract and usually you would be discussing... uh, rate that you're going to give them, a, a rebate potentially, but quite often a large investment into that venue in return for a certain pourage volume over that five-year tenure. Right, right, right. So you might actually, it's not uncommon to pay $200,000 towards someone's fit-out. And Is that right? It's very, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and actually it's interesting, I was talking to a hairdresser, and it could be similar in that, in that industry as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what... And if you know anything about hospitality in New Zealand, it's very fickle. And for a business to last that long mm. is actually, you know, it's bloody hard work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when, I mean, I always admire the likes of the Pregos or the non-solo pizzas and that of this oh, world amazing. that are, you know, 20 years plus and yep. still successful. Totally. It's not by luck. It's mm. really hard work. So, so, you know, before I came into that role, it was all about how do we get the best venues and winning new business all the time and really trying to get uh, the inside word on when someone had taken over a new lease and so forth. But what I could see from having experience in other industries is that actually I'd worked in hospitality a lot and a lot of the time the people that might be starting their first venture are really talented chefs or fantastic front of house people but actually probably haven't had, or or in some cases haven't had that business experience of understanding how to make that whole unit work. And so you're handing over large sums of money on a business case, but have we really interrogated how that is going to play out Mm. in, you Mm. know, three, four, five years' time? So 
one of the things that I introduced at that time was changing the investment model to go instead of going, hey, right, here's maybe and you know, I'll just throw out two hundred thousand yep. dollars as a as a investment figure there for you to go and do your fit out. Actually, we'll give you one hundred and fifty, and the remainder of that money might be for uh, business coaching on how to set up your sale, your your marketing activity. How mm. are you going to promote the fact that you're a new venue in a new residential area or yeah, something like yeah, that, yeah. where it's all new customers, or we might put a portion towards uh, coaching in terms of setting up your food costings. How do you do menu design to make sure that actually the the menus that you're, that you're going to put out there, that everything actually sells and is food costed correctly? Mm-hmm. And then are we going to help you put systemization in, in practice and processes in place so that you actually stick to those portion sizes and so forth? And that, in a way, firmed up our investment and made sure that we didn't have that customer churn. So I guess that approach to sales was quite different to what had been traditional in that in that industry in terms of just winning a new contract. We were yeah, doing yeah, yeah. better because our contracts weren't falling over in three, four years' time and we were missing the volume that we had you know, right. yeah, looked at. So it's, it's an interesting blend yeah. of sales and marketing because, because yeah. really you're looking at the whole piece, aren't you? The whole piece, yeah. I think it is really important. You've got to care about the, the person and actually what the end result is for them. And that's probably what I've been, I mean, that example is one that I've been most proud of in my career because you were changing the lives of business people. There's nothing yeah. more stressful than going, should I can't pay my staff this week or this mm, month? Mm, mm. And so when you walk alongside them and you business partner with them, you know, we were, we were not only selling a lot of beer, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in its yeah. very simplest form, yeah. but yeah. You're, you're helping mum and dad New Zealanders with their cafe, bar, restaurant dream, you know? Mm, yeah, mm. so that was pretty cool. Do you, do, you think that, um, do you think that many businesses get the link between sales and marketing right? Because, because uh, that's quite a unique model from, you know, from what I, what I know. Yeah. I don't, it, there's always that interesting kind of dichotomy or tension between the two. Mm. And I think it is really important to understand each other's point of view and, and side of the story and, and so forth. Not just in sales and marketing, but in, there's always seems to be a yin and yang, yep. you know. Yep. In my current role with heading up the Driven Business Unit, it's the it's between our commercial and editorial team. Yep, yep. You know, we want to sell some uh, products over here, but can you write about this? Well, no, because our audiences want to yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, consume content like this. Mm-hmm. And But you've really got to understand and walk in each other's shoes to kind of to, to appreciate the unique challenges that each faces, really. So yeah. I'm keen to understand how you do that. So this, so this podcast is about sales and marketing so let's mm-hmm. let's think about you know a sales and a marketing person in, the, in a broader business how do they go about engaging others in the business so that they can work more productively together yeah I think there's nothing more effective than when I say walk in someone else's shoes I literally mean walk in someone else's shoes so actually spending a day shadowing them mm-hmm. actually understanding what is that process like for you know, if I was the sales team, h- how are they actually going about that their day and achieving what they're trying to achieve? And I'll give you a great example of when I was with um, 
British American Tobacco, I think. And you had the a head office team that's negotiating trading terms mm-hmm. in terms of share of range and an outlet and, and so forth. And this um, was in particular with the foodstuffs banner. Okay. A massive big corporate, mm, right? Mm. So you're having a head office conversation where you are negotiating what might be the, the right range, right pricing, right rebates and, and so forth. But to understand what then has to happen in terms of the sales team on the ground actually has to implement those things yep, to yep. the hundreds of stores across mm. the country, and in my case it was the South Island, and a big part of foodstuffs is Foursquare. So Foursquares are located in small parts of New Zealand, mm. you know, Dipton, Matara, <laughs> Tapanui. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and they're quite often attached to someone's homes. You're literally sitting at their dining room table talking to them about how to achieve something in, in their store that's going to be good for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for head office, it's only your compliance to trading terms is, is really important, otherwise the what you've just negotiated isn't that yeah, isn't that great. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah right. So so being able to understand well what does the other party actually have to go through to implement what mm. what I have put in place. Yeah. And one one girl in particular was interesting in in a, my team at the time, she was really struggling with a particular outlet which was in a small suburb of Dunedin. And right. this owner operator had said to her hey, look, I haven't even left my suburb in 20 years. So not even into the, what you'd call the main street of Dunedin. So probably mm. like a 10-kilometre radius from their business and wow. home. Amazing, right? Yeah. And so the marketing team had created all these amazing tools and things for to help the sales team communicate mm. what the trading terms were. Now here's the flyers, here's the um, calculator on your iPad to be right, able right, to show right. them what rebate they're going to get if they yep. planogram this way and it looks like this and awesome. it's fantastic merchandising and all this sort of stuff. Amazing. Which is great, but for the sales team and this particular person who was implementing in a small region mm. with different types of New Zealanders who do business in different ways. Not that interested in the planogram. Not that interested in it. Yeah. And in reality, how that person did business was... It was about relationship. Right. And it was about talking to them in the ways that they understood and what they were used to. And so this particular salesperson in the end changed where she bought her milk and bread from. You know, may go out of her way to buy it on the way home so that, hey, I'm seeing you, I'm in here, and, you know, all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the end, it was a handwritten letter that she delivered in the post explaining, you know, hey, you've told me your goals and your business are this. This is why these things are good for you, you know, let me help you, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And she managed to close that sale. And so that's an example on a very granular level. But, yeah, understanding both sides is really important. And you can take that same example and apply that on a global sense of, you know, if I was doing business in Asia and at Asahi we had the same thing where the team would come over from Japan and it's about relationship first, you know, for years sometimes before you actually do business. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for understanding other people's perspectives. Spend a day in their role. Mm, and mm. and for, the, for the editorial team uh, that my team's working with, you know, that the commercial teams work alongside, it's going, hey, how, what's the process of how you create that print product every week? 
when do you get the flat plan? Mm. How much time do you have to sort that through that? And so when I ask you to, you know, if you can do this or change this or whatever, what does that mean for you? Yeah. So yeah, I think it's all about understanding others and actually taking the time to walk in their shoes. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So, so what what would you say if you had to give um, kind of top tips for successful sales and marketing activity to someone who hadn't perhaps done much before? What would you say they should have a think about? Ah. Uh, I think sometimes there's a tendency to kind of, I, I heard the saying the other day and it really stuck with me, about being a mile wide and an inch deep or being an inch wide and a mile deep. And my approach to kind of sales and marketing has always been actually you've kind of got to go to mile deep to really understand your customer. Mm. And I'll give you an example of that is... When I was working for Punarika, yep. and I was working in a trade marketing role, and so you're really trying to uh, obviously get your products as into outlets, mm-hmm. uh, on-premise outlets, and have those not only range, but actually obviously used and poured and, mm. and so forth. And it's not enough to just, again, create the great selling tools and tell the brand story and so forth and then walk alongside the salesperson to go, right, let's now negotiate the speed rack rate because you want your products in the speed rack. You right, know, right, that's right, what's okay. going to get poured more frequently. Okay. And and what the discount is or the rebate is and is all that there, sort of there's thing. There's a speed rack. There's a speed rack. Is there? Yep, yep. Exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm going to look for it next time. But, but actually, who's the person that's going to pull that product? It's the bartender. Mm, mm. And so you've got to understand all the actors in an outlet. And they are the ones, they're like artists in some respect. They want to be passionate about your products. You need mm. them to be passionate about your products. You need them to recommend it. Yeah. You need them to experiment with them and create cocktails with them. Yeah. You need them to feel confident about your brand and that it's quality and mm. love the brand story and all that sort of thing. And actually, if you, I don't know if you've ever read Jeff Ross's book, Every Bastard Says No, about no. how he created 42 Below with his um, wife, Justine. Actually, really cool book, to be honest. It's a, it's a really good read. Okay, it's on the list. But that, that's how that, that brand was built. An amazing success story that after eight years of being started off in a garage, sold for, I think it was about $138 million or something to Bacardi. That's right. But it was one over the hearts and minds of one bartender at a time. Right, so, right. Yeah, it's... it's so get close to your customer. Get close to your customer. Really understand what they really need. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think it's really important. How, how do you do that in a, you know, a big organisation like yours at NZME where you've got so many different customers? How, how do you do that? So how do you productionise that? How do you scale that? Yeah, well, across our sales teams, and when I was in the uh, heading up the commercial operation for for South Island, I played quite an integration role working with them and some of their, their largest clients. Right. And the thing that I always used to say to the teams was, advertising should only really be the output of a well-formulated strategy. So yes, we sell media, and you know it could be tempting to go, well, how many spots do you want? They call mm, radio mm, ads mm. spots. How many spots do you want? What's your price? And yep, yada, yada. Yep. But you will not be successful unless you take the time to really understand that business. So quite often in that role, my teams were working with with small businesses Mm -hmm. or some, I mean, up to I had clients that would spend a million dollars on marketing and didn't actually even have a marketing manager. So really understanding 
uh, who's in that business, who's advising them on strategy and so forth, mm. test that strategy. You know, you should be a business partner. So, hey, why are you making decisions like that? Why have you put all your money into this channel? Or why are you only doing brand building activity and not performance or the other way around? Mm. Or, and, and ask them around their business goals. You know, if you look back over the end of the year and it's gone fantastic, what does that look like for you? Or what are the three things that keep you up at night? You know, take the time to go into someone's venue and see what that customer experience is like. Look at their website and, and is that actually, uh, is it communicating what they should communicate? Mm. Are you running a media campaign but when the person gets to site, it's got nothing to do with the competition that they were promoting? Yeah, or, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's really important to get close to your, your customer and understand their business goals and actually advise them on... Well, I would always, you know, across the teams, advise them to to actually be a partner to those clients. Yeah. And and I don't think that I don't think you can be effective unless you actually do that in the long term. Yeah. And to do that you need to physically be part of their world and experience their products and what they do. Absolutely. Yep. Go in and visit their stores. Buy off them so you understand what the experience is like. Join their email newsletters so you see the communication they're sending back to you. Mm-hmm. Follow their social channels and and care. I actually care what it means for them at the at the end of the day. Yeah. Because it's interesting that you still don't drink your old competitors' products, so you genuinely <laughs> do care. I genuinely do care, and yeah, and maybe that is why I've also been broad in my career mm. because I I could never work at one place and then go and work for the competitor. Yeah. I just, I don't know why, I just, yeah, so I'd rather go to a different industry. I think that's the sales and marketing <laughs> thing. I think we, we yeah. do tend to really buy into the brand yeah. long term, mm. you know. Um, what, if you think about your career so far, what, what, would be, what would be the proudest moment or the proudest achievement you've had? I think that's back to sort of what I mentioned before around the role of Asahi and that by changing the way that we were investing in these outlets, mm. you were helping them be successful on the long term. Yeah. So, yeah, I think giving somebody money, <laughs> and in fact, a lot of our winners will tell you this, can actually be worse for them. Yeah. 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 So that is probably what I'm most proud of, is, is being able to actually make a sustainable change in their lives to help them run their business to be successful on the long term. And are you are you in touch with any of those businesses? Do you see do you see them around still thriving? I still go to all of my customers, do old you? customers. Yeah, I find it. You know, <laughs> when you leave different roles, you it's like a divorce. Mm. And in different mm. times that I've moved on to different organisations and and things, and or you'd get a promotion, you move into a different area of the business, and you go, but can't I just keep that bit? Can't I just keep <laughs> yeah. that person? You yeah. know, and New Zealand's a small place, so you will. Uh, that will pay dividends years down, you know, down the track in terms mm. of keeping in touch with people and and still supporting them and championing their products and so forth. Yeah, yeah. awesome, awesome. What about? Um, I'm interested to know your thoughts on in housing versus outsourcing. So, what what are the sorts of things that you've um, in housed and outsourced in the past, and what have you learned? Yeah, so. I've had great experiences and not so great experiences on both sides. Yeah. So probably for me, one which is 
I think I would prefer to bring in a house when it's about your brand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I can give the example of Absolute Vodka, you know, global brand. Yeah. I think the brand guidelines booklet was 80 pages long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've, you've got global creative campaigns that you are trying to localise to make relevant to your yeah. market. Yeah. But layer on top of that all of the industry specifics and in particular in liquor you have to have be very careful in terms of your corporate social responsibility mm-hmm. no people under 25 in your ads you have to have drink responsibly on, on everything and the you know font size has to be larger than the right, right, smallest right. advertising font on the creative okay. all those sorts of things yes. and i just in, in my experience and of of outsourcing that stuff mm. that is about your particular brand no one, no one knows it as much as your in-house team, where you mm. are immersed and you're living and breathing it and, and so forth. So, so in that respect, I'm probably a fan of in-house. However, can I, I've can had... I, can I challenge that? Yeah. So, so one, a previous guest um, who was biased because he's from an agency background, yeah. but his view was for creativity, if you have it in-house, eventually you get groupthink and people present the boss what the boss wants to see. So, so do you need, you know... Domain knowledge internally, but, but is there value to having kind of a fresh view from outside, or does it actually make more, you know, do more harm than good? Well, yeah, I think there's a great there's a great point in that, and what I was uh, what I was going to reckon it to is it should be I view it as a pair of scales. So where you've got knowledge transfer, mm-hmm. and you're going to gain real IP from outsourcing, that's when I think outsourcing is great. Right. So right. it shouldn't be about, in my view. Uh, okay, I need to, it shouldn't be about just resourcing. If I need to instruct to minute detail around what I want an external party to execute, then, whether, and I've had experience of that in product development right. or in, in some you know, creative mm. uh, work, then that's not, a, that's not a, I'm not gaining any knowledge there. I'm not gaining, I'm, I'm not learning anything. No. So, but where you've got real knowledge transfer and you've got an agency that can come to the party with something that you don't have or mm. your team doesn't have mm. and challenge you on the strategy and walk alongside you and understand what it means for your team through the line and and, and bottom line what is going to make the business work well, then, yeah, then I've had I've had great success with, with outsourcing. And, and not so much uh, in, in, I guess, pure marketing as sense, but in product development, that's been really great for me. Um, companies that have brought a lot of knowledge around AI and machine learning and so right, forth right. has been fantastic. But yeah. coupled with doma- deep domain knowledge internally? Absolute must. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. And what, what about sales? Have you, have you outsourced sales before? I'm a, I am a fan, actually, of some of the sales coaching coming externally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, I've had great experiences actually with with coaches coming in and being able to look at a sales function and help the teams understand what is their selling style, what processes they maybe need to go through to understand their customer better or to change their approach or to structure their presentation. And I have actually had some really good experience with that, yeah. And have you, have you resourced sales always internally? Yes. Yes, I haven't had, just in the organisations that I've been in, I haven't had a case where we have resourced sales externally. So so what have you learned about how best to incentivise salespeople? Because obviously there are lots of theories. Yeah. What have you found works or doesn't work? 
there are so many unintended consequences mm. of incentive schemes. And I've seen some that are really poorly thought through. <laughs> I'm a fan of a mixture between team and individual. And that's just because of the culture I like to drive within the teams that I work in. So it is not enough for someone to be a hero and to just care about themselves mm. and get there and leave your teammates floundering. It's In my view, it's not enough. So I'm a massive fan also of transparency. So in any teams that I operate in, every, everybody's numbers are transparent. Everybody knows how each other are doing. Everybody knows how the team's doing. And everybody knows, actually, importantly, how the business is doing. Mm. I, share the, I share my P&Ls with my team. I want them to understand that when we're making decisions or resource decisions or so forth, they understand why things are possible yep. or the flip side of that not possible mm. and that it's not just because you know the, the the big corporate or executive team or so forth have just decided or it's too yep. difficult as bureaucracy. Mm. They've got to understand what it all kind of means. And yeah, so I think there should be incentives for both the the individual so that they strive and have control over their own uh, income. Yep. But I'm a big fan of of team. And actually a great example in terms of where I've seen it work best in practice is in the hospitality sector, we worked with two companies. Uh, one, and this probably leans on to your, your outsourcing uh, mm-hmm. question, one was called The Hospitality Company, and they were a business that provided coaching for operators around all aspects to do with their business. Right. And one was a software company called Loader Reports. And what Loader Reports did is helped bars, restaurants, hotels, and so forth with a technology platform where they could input all of their uh, menu items mm. from them, drinks, food, whatever, all food costed, so that every time you know something went out the door, they know what portion um, uh, came out of that product. You yep. put all your stock into it and so forth. Yeah, okay. You put all your staff wages into it, obviously not just their, uh, their hourly rate, but their KiwiSaver and holiday pay and everything mm. in there. Mm. And then you set your staffing levels to, to suit, make sure that everything's actually going to be profitable. And then you set your incentives for the day, the week, the month, and right, so forth. Right. And, and they have it all visible, and you'd have, uh, you know, an iPad might be in the kitchen or behind the till or so forth. And so to have that real through-the-line uh, continuity of thought and understanding of is the business performing mm. from the food runner yep. or the till operator to the person who's actually the, you know, the front-of-house manager or sales team manager and then the business owner and incentivise the, the front-of-house team if they actually... Uh, hit their target for the day, but actually if we also then got our food costings in on, you know, yeah, on budget yeah, yeah, because yeah. we didn't stuff up any orders in the kitchen had to save us, yes, you know, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. then everybody wins when everybody wins. Everyone's so working together. So working together. So that's what I've done with, with you know, how my teams have been incentivised. There is individual components and then there's always a team component as well. And do you do you incentivise, um, in sales teams specifically, do you incentivise um, revenue results or behaviours or a bit of both? Depends on the role, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Depends on the role in terms of what that person is expected to do. I I am really big on culture, so I do want people thinking about winning well and not winning at all costs. Mm. And that might be the flex between 
am I remunerating this person monthly versus quarterly versus, you know, holding some back per annum? I mean, <laughs> we've all seen those behaviours of salespeople when it's like, right, I've hit my target, boom, on to the next month. Yep. You know, yep. Forget, yep. forget yep. about whether the business is actually yeah. going to uh, benefit more if I continue kind of hustling hard. Mm. Well, actually, I'll move on because, you know, I know that I'll get, uh, you know, that's the, my next target. So you've got yeah. to really think about what type of behaviours your incentive scheme is, is driving. And, yeah, there are some where I'll put in things like NPS scores or certain yeah. projects, you know, really encouraging innovation and, and that it's not just about the hamster wheel, mm. but are you taking time to, to think through big projects of being able to execute those well and, yeah. So would it be fair to say that when you're designing incentive, you're starting with the business strategy, what you need them to do to contribute to it and then working out what might some behaviours be if I put it this way? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yeah, and absolutely. then, and do you do you tend to sort of tweak them as as you go? Because you know, I'm, I'm sure there can be unforeseen circumstances. Uh, unforeseen. Um, yeah, with with any both incentive scheme and uh, and even your business strategy, I think it is important to kind of tweak as you go. Not perhaps not the strategy, but the way that you're going to get there. Yeah. So. So we at the moment are set up in, I have driven set up and sort of, we operate in an agile sense. Okay. So we have our vision, we have our kind of um, 12 month plan of what we really want to achieve mm -hmm. this year. Yeah. We have that broken down into you know H1, H2. And then we have two week sprints. And so every two weeks, and today is end of sprint today, so the team will be sitting there and going, right, did we achieve everything that we thought we wanted to achieve in this sprint? Mm. And what are our priorities for the next? two weeks yep. that are really going to help us achieve that mission, vision, etc. And those are the things that might flex and change. The way that we thought we might get there might change slightly differently, but your overall action goal would stay the same. Yeah. And from there we break that down then into a cadence of twice-weekly stand-ups. Everyone works on Microsoft Teams and we have our um, tickets there of the things that we're working on. Mm. And so it's really... Everybody knows where they're heading. Everybody knows what everybody else is working on to help achieve that uh, objective. And then everybody is accountable to the rest of the team as well because you're at stand-up going, right, here's my tickets, here's what I'm I'm, I'm at, this, 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 this status. I've, you know, I've roadblocked here, I'm falling behind on that, and I need some help with this one, or I'm waiting for an answer on that before I can progress that. And that also has really helped our teams in terms of being uh, flexible and work from anywhere. Mm. So, So... I have a saying that I love, which is high alignment, high autonomy. Right. And so if everybody is really aligned on what the business is trying to achieve mm. and and you can see that and, and that's what, you know, I love tools like Microsoft Teams for that, then I don't care what time you come into work, you should stay at home and if you're in Auckland and beat the traffic, you know, and, and come in at 10. Uh, and Or perhaps you actually want to work from home for a couple of days a week and come in just on collaboration days. You know, so yeah, high alignment, high autonomy. I think is is a great. You know, it's working well with my teams anyway. Well, that that might well be the answer to the the, the last question. Um, this has been an awesome chat. Thank you. Um, the last question I'm going to ask you is, um, if you were to give a single piece of advice to our listeners that they could go in action tomorrow, what would that be? I quite like high alignment, high autonomy, but you never <laughs> another one too. That is a good one. That is a good one. But actually, I would say it's actually about making yourself uncomfortable to really try uh, throwing yourself into new scenarios. And maybe that comes back to that kind of broadness I've had in terms of 
my career. But you're only uncomfortable once, twice, three times, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you, and then it's knowledge based, and you've banked that knowledge. So, so yeah, I think that is something that has just served me so well. And if you don't know something, just go and ask people. You know, people are knowledgeable in something usually because they've got a passion in it, mm. and so they generally like talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so being able to sort of put your hand up and go hey, I really like what you guys are doing over there, but gosh, I don't really understand some of those things. Can I buy you a coffee and, and you know, explain to me a little bit more about what yeah, that is and, yeah, yeah. and so forth. And, yeah, if I can just have really one more example of, of that, of where I even surprised myself with this in terms of, you know, being sometimes afraid to reach out to, to people where you've gone, gosh, man, those are the absolute market leader and I love what they're doing uh, over there but gosh, they never talk to me, you know, and I have instead taken the approach of, of just asking, you know, and I have reached out to, you know, CEOs of successful global businesses on the other side of the world and just going, hey, I'm Tash, <laughs> I'm in a little country with five million people, really love what you're doing, and, you know, I'm really interested in this and I'm battling on this, yeah. and would you give me an hour of your time? And in return... I've got expertise in this area, and hey, if it's ever of interest, you know, feel free to ask me anything about this. And I tell you what, I've got about an eighty percent response rate. Is that right? It's amazing knowledge that you would just, you know, to have people come back to you and go, "Yeah, I'll give an hour of my time." That's amazing. And then what you learn out mm. of those experiences is just—it's phenomenal. So yeah, I would say it's—it's it's relentlessly learn with real intent. And throw yourself into those situations where you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. That's where the growth is. Amazing. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for very joining much. us. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. If you liked it, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts, head over to podcasts.nz. And if it's IT expertise you're after, then make your way to gorillatechnology.com. See you next time.